Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Uh, so just, just now, as Jim was up here saying all those nice things about us and the staff, uh, well, first of all, uh, when we first sat down, to, we stood up to sing our first song, and um, Jim kind of came up at the wrong time, and we sat back down. And uh, as we're singing, I look down because I want to check, okay, what's the song right before I come up to preach? And I can't find my Bible or my bulletin or my notes, and I'm looking all around, and I can't find it. And, and I see it, and it's on the other side of Pastor Jim, like over here. And I'm thinking, how did that get over? Well, we were kind of confused, standing and sitting, that's where it is. And, uh, and so I grabbed it real quick and brought it back over. And then uh, during, as Jim came up to pray, I started looking for it again to like look over my notes real quick before I came up, and I can't find it anywhere. And so I think, here's, I'm looking around, it's nowhere. I mean, there's, it's just me up there in the pew at this point. Where, where could it possibly have gone? So my natural inclination is Craig Cheney is sitting right behind me, and he probably saw me searching for it earlier and thought, oh, this will be funny. I'll like hide his Bible in his notes. And so he, he leans over and he says, are you, are you looking for something? I say, yeah, I can't find my note. Did you take it? Like, and he says, no, I didn't take it. I said, you know, and then I look up and Pastor Jim had taken my Bible and my notes. <laughs> so he's up here saying all these nice things about me, but, uh, God has got his own plans, but I got him back before he went back and sat next to Teresa, so we're okay. Uh, I thought maybe he was trying to test me out and uh, make me wing it without, um, but we're not doing that today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. As you're turning there, uh, how many of you have been watching the Winter Olympics? All right, good. Uh, I, I mean, I always enjoy the Olympics whenever they come around. Um, the Winter Olympics are like this really strange thing when you compare them to the Summer Olympics. I was noticing this uh, and thinking about this this week. Like, So the Summer Olympics is like, let's see who can run fastest and like do the most spins and flips and like all kinds of things like that. And like the, the Winter Olympics are like the same thing, but uh, they put knives on the bottom of your feet and then say like, now let's see who can go the fastest. Let's see who can do the most flips. Or they just say, hey, we're going to put you at the top of this hill and see if you can survive to the bottom. And we'll make you do that a few times to see who is the best at, like, surviving. Uh, have you been watching Doubles Luge? I had never seen this one this year before. So how, how many of you have seen Doubles Luge? Okay, not, as, not that many. So the luge, right, is like bobsled. If you've seen Cool Runnings, there's like four of them. They push it down. The luge is just one person on a sled. Doubles Luge is the same sled but two people on it. This is a tiny little thing, like they don't even fit in on it. And the one guy on the bottom, like he can't see anything. He's just like looking straight up and, uh, and it's just, it's just ridiculous. But I love the Olympics. I love, I love watching all of this. People do these things. Like I, I think if I were to be an Olympian, my only chance is probably curling. Um, just because it doesn't, I mean, I'm sure it takes athleticism, but like it seems like you don't necessarily have to be the kind of athlete that like the luge people or the snowboarders or things like that. But uh, it's just fascinating to think about all of the work. Uh, we were just talking to Aaron Mickleberry um, 
was sharing this morning about like she won a competition to in down in Salt Lake City and she like is always like in the mix of like possibly going to the Summer Olympic Games and like competing and like you for years she's been working on this and you think about all of the hard work that goes in to becoming an Olympian and I was thinking about this this week that like we always hear about you know the big name figure skater the big name whoever the person that's expected to win the gold and every now and then there's somebody that comes out of nowhere Nobody expected them to win, and, they, and they, they do it. And then there are the people who nobody expects them to win, and they don't. And, and they finish like 45th in the biathlon. And what if that was you, right? What if that was your, that was your life? You have dedicated so much, to, and there's so much pride in being able to represent your country in the Olympics, and all the work and all the preparation and the, the diet and the coaching and, and the training and and you it's over right and you're not on the podium you're not even close to the podium you're just you're just the guy that finished 45th um and they probably have already cut away from the broadcast by the time you're coming across the finish line uh and just to think and yet there's probably still some joy in that right like there's this accomplishment that i competed in the winter olympic games and to think about all of the preparation, the game plans, that, like in the figure skating. Like, have you noticed that when they do the figure skating, they say, okay, here comes the triple axle. Like, they know what's going to happen because there's a game plan already drawn up for how this, this person is going to do it, and they know what's coming. And they have this preparation, like, here's how I'm going to attack this course. Here's how I'm going to do this half pipe. Here's how I'm, and they, they know what they're going to do ahead of time. And then it plays out. And sometimes it plays out like they intended. Sometimes they fall. Sometimes they crash. Uh, but but this is this is the plan. Here, here's how we compete. We're going to think about that a little bit in, in God's plans. But uh, as we begin here, I want you to turn, uh, if you're not already, in Romans chapter 11. If you, uh, we just sang the song Doxology. If you have a, a translation that has headings, In your Bible, probably Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, uh, says doxology. Is that true for most of you, not all of you? Doxology. The word doxology uh, actually comes from the Greek. Doxos means glory, and logos means word or saying. So really this is a glory saying is what what a doxology is. And this is just our our translators here have, have... called this that and most most scholars say yeah this is a doxology a glory saying that that paul is launching into here and so our verse our verse that we're memorizing today we've been talking a lot about glory the the whole earth is full of god's glory and we've been talking about these things and we're going to touch on that again next week um, but our verse today is this um, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And this, the choir just sang this song to us as well, sang, sang this text. And it continues on, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things forever. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul launches into this, this glory saying. He's come really to the end of... Uh, a, a major theological section. Most people think that what Paul has been writing here, most people, most scholars agree that this is probably Paul's greatest work. 
most, most depth, most heavy theology, uh, most clear explanations of what God is doing. And Paul launches into it. He comes to the end of it, and, he, and uh, he launches into this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Um, I don't know about you, but as I, as I read this phrase, this, like, you can get lost in what Paul is saying here. It, it becomes this, this really um, spiritual language, and it becomes this, this language that, uh, if you're not careful, you just sort of, like, yeah, this is really great stuff, but, but what is he actually saying? And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. What is Paul saying about who God is and what God is doing, and why does he do this here? Uh, one of the things that we find out in Romans chapter 16 is that Paul isn't actually writing this letter. He's, he's dictating it. So the guy who's writing it in, in Romans chapter 16 says, oh, by the way, I also say hi to you as he's saying hi to everybody. Um, and so I, I almost have this picture that Paul is here and he's laying out this argument. And he's speaking and, and his buddy is, is writing it down. And, and he gets to the end of this, po- this section. And, and Paul, Paul just launches into this praise of who God is and what God has done, and, and his, his friend is just trying to, to copy it down. That Paul is so ecstatic of what he's been talking about. Um, and so he writes this out. But I, I want us to, I came across this quote about Paul a few weeks ago, and I want to I show it to you because as I come to, to this portion of a doxology, and you think about, like, uh, how many of you know somebody that's written, like, a hymn? Or, or like a worship song or anything like that. Um, you, you, there's a certain type of people that are able to like launch into this kind of language. And, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel uh, distant from those people. Like, wow, like you're really like super spiritual. That you, you know, you write this amazing song. You write you're like you're like I'm not really a poet and like people that can do it it kind of seems like oh those yeah those people over there um but i want to just give you this picture of who paul was for um that's weird for me but okay i'm going to read this to you so uh paul spent years of his life on the road carrying his tent clothing and tools not many scrolls if any he carried the bible safely tucked away in his head where it belongs As an apostle, he often supported himself by plying his trade. He was busy traveling, working with his hands, winning people for Christ, shepherding or uh, coping with his converts, responding to questions and problems. And I love this picture of Paul uh, that we often lose when we think of the guy who wrote Romans. We think of this, this kind of aloof spiritual writer. He's sitting at his desk and he's just got his books out and he's and he's writing this deep theological work. But Paul was a guy who, who like this quote says, he's traveling the world. He's, he's carrying his tools with him. He's working with his hands. And, he's, and he's, he's working with people. But he's not this sort of spiritual other. He's, he's a guy who's, who's been called by God to do a work. But he's also a guy who, uh, who understands struggle. And he understands people. And, he, and he's doing this work. And I love this quote, this idea of him, uh, especially as we are having this, this year of the book in which we're, we're taking time to memorize Scripture. I love that portion 
where he talks about that he tucked the Bible safely away in his head, right? He's not carrying all these scrolls. They don't have, he doesn't have the whole Old Testament that he's carrying around with him, but he knows it, right? He knows the scripture and he's memorized it and he's learned it so that he can then share it with others. And he has these ideas. And as we are taking time to memorize scripture throughout this year and to talk about it, the reason we both are, are memorizing it together but then also teaching on it is so that, as Pastor Jim mentioned to us a month ago when we started this series, so that we can be consuming the word of God. So that we can, we can be living it out. We're, we're uh, ingesting it so that we can incarnate and live it in, into our world, that we know these things. And, and so I love this quote because I think it, it gives us encouragement to like what we're doing with the cards and the memorizing is not just like, oh yeah, that's great. We all know 50 more Bible verses by the end of the year. Good for us. But it's, it's so that we can live this out, so that we can know these things. And then I love this because it just, for me, this quote gives me a context into who who this guy writing was. And we're going to be reading uh, and looking and memorizing a lot of verses from Paul throughout the rest of the year. And part of that is because Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament. And so it's helpful for me, at least, to remember, oh, yeah, here's Paul. Here's, this is the kind of guy that he was, that he's this guy that's traveling, he's working, he's, he's learning the scriptures so that he can, he can share them with others. And this is what we are invited to do as well. So, um, so I think this context is helpful. And there's this truth in these words of praise that, that Paul is giving here. That, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him... And for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul writes this, but there's a context also to these words that he's written. And as I mentioned, part of the context is the fact that for these last 11 chapters, he's been explaining and working through what has God done in Jesus Christ to bring about the restoration of his creation. And Paul has this understanding in these scriptures that he has in his head that the scriptures begin in Genesis chapter 1 with a God who creates. And one of the things that we're told in, throughout Genesis chapter 1 is that the creation that God makes is good. This is a good creation. And, and if you're familiar with that, we won't take time to look at it, but it says God created on the first day he saw that he made and it was good. On the second day he saw that he made and it was good. It comes to the end and said all he has made is very good. And in the midst of this, he places Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, you, you, man and woman, are here to take care of my good creation. And by Genesis chapter 3, we see that the man and the woman fail at their task to care for the good creation. And that, that sin enters the world. And that now it's, things are no longer good the way that God intended them to be. So we get all the way to Genesis chapter 6. We're told that the whole earth is filled with violence. And that the inclinations of man's hearts were only evil all the time. Like within six chapters of the good creation that God has made, we're told it's only evil all the time. 
And God begins to do this work, and then by calling a guy named Abraham to say, here's how I'm going to bring about the restoration of this good creation that I've made. And so Paul, in Romans, is working through how did God do this, and what are God's plans, so that he comes to the end and he, and he gives this explanation. And so over the next five weeks, uh, starting next week, we're going to be talking specifically about what was God's plan of salvation, and, and what was this game plan that he drew up for for redeeming what was lost Um, but for today i want to take a look at just one story from the old testament that gives us i think a picture of this work that god was doing and and what paul what paul is understanding about who god is so that by the time he comes to here at the end of chapter 11 of romans he's launching into this this praise of who God is. So I want to invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. One of these days we're going to have to do a series on Jonah. Um, because I don't know about you, but for most of my life, Jonah was uh, just like the flannel graph, right? The giant fish that comes in and eats him and then spits him up. And, and like that, that was my familiarity with the story. But uh, a few years ago, I actually spent time studying Jonah and looking into it, and it's just absurd. Like, the whole story is a little bit of a joke, um, and we won't take time to look at all of it, but, like, it's, there's so much humor in, in this story, and, and so, so one of these days we'll have to spend some time really diving into Jonah just so that you can appreciate how funny this is as much as I do. I mean, you can read it on your own and laugh if you want to, but... We should spend some time talking about. But anyway, Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So we have this situation where God comes to this, this prophet Jonah, and he says, I want you to go and I want you to preach against the city of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh would have been the capital of Assyria, uh, and, and God says, the reason I want you to go preach against this city is because they're, they're wicked. And we know from history the, the kind of wickedness that the Assyrians were, that they embodied, that these are people who, uh, this isn't just like, sort of like, oh yeah, they kind of like disobey their parents or whatever. But these are people who are, uh, they're torturing their enemies, uh, like flaying them alive type evil uh, and suffering that they're inflicting upon their enemies. And, and Jonah is a prophet from Israel, from the northern, from the northern kingdom of Israel. And, uh, and they're like right next to Assyria, and the Assyrians are enemies with the Israelites. And so God comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites, this capital of Assyria, and preach against, and tell them, uh, and preach against them because their wickedness has come up before me. So, verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Uh, We looked at uh, our first verse that that we memorized. Anybody remember what our first verse is that we memorized? Rita, you want to say it? Good. If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or make my bed in the depths, you are there. So one of the things that Jonah, maybe if he had known that verse, 
uh, he would have known that he couldn't run away from God. But he does anyway. Um, and and you you know how this story goes. There's a storm. He gets thrown in. Uh, the fish comes and swallows him up. Eventually spits him back out on land. And Jonah says, okay, I guess I'm going to go to Nineveh. I don't really have a choice here. Um, and he goes and he preaches against the city of Nineveh. And the people repent. And this is where I want us to pick up pick up the story as we get a picture of, of what what is it that Paul knew and understood about God and not only had had seen but but specifically saw through the person of Jesus Christ this this story I think gives us a picture of of who God is and what what it is that Paul launches into so in J- Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 it says but after the people repent and God no longer destroys them he says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So what is Jonah upset about? He's upset that God saved them. <laughs> He's like, I, God, I, I knew when you called me to go to Nineveh that what you were going to do is you were going to save those people. And I didn't want you to save those people, so I ran away. I didn't want to do what you wanted me to do because I knew that you're compassionate. I knew that you're slow to anger. I knew that you're abounding in love that you relent in sending calamity. I didn't want any of that for the Ninevites, so I ran away. And so he's so upset that he says, take my life, it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond, he just leaves the city. He goes out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah's kind of holding out hope that maybe God might... uh, still punish them. Uh, maybe it didn't stick with the Ninevites. So he's, he sits and waits. The Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Uh, he goes from being angry to at least he's happy about his little plant. Uh, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God... Uh, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And this is where Jonah ends. And the problem for Jonah is that he knows the kind of God who has called him to the Ninevites. And this is not how God, Jonah wants God to deal with his enemies. Jonah wants God to punish Jonah's enemies. He wants 
them to make them suffer. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. The week, I mean, just, just this week, we're reminded again of the evil that is in our world. And we just we see glimpses of that in what happened in Florida. But if you stop and, and just think about all of the evil that is taking place in our world right now, the people in slavery, the people who are being abused, the people who are suffering, there are, there are more slaves today than at any point in history. And you think about human beings doing that to other human beings, and you say, yeah, if God sent me to preach against these people who are per- perpetuating this evil, I might run away too. This is not how we would advise God to deal with evil. This is not the way that we would draw it up. Which is Paul's question, right? In Romans chapter 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been our, his counselor? God didn't ask us how we want to deal with evil. And if it was left up to us, we would say, oh yeah, sure, God, please be gracious and thank you for your, for your compassion on me and my family and the people that I care about. But maybe not them, right? And yet, God sends Jonah to Nineveh and he says, is it right for you to be angry? about the compassion that I have on these people. You didn't make them. I made them. And I love them just as much as I love you, the Israelites. And so, Jonah, it's not right for you to be angry. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? This is not how we would draw it up. When we take a look at sin and the effects of sin in our world, this is not how we would have done it. And yet, the story that Paul traces and the story that we're going to look at over the next weeks of God's plan of salvation is God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to offer freely forgiveness for you and for me, but also for our enemies. And the people in our world who who could care less about who God is and what God has done and God's compassion and his goodness, God still loves them. And he sent his son for them as well. And we want to hold the bitterness in our hearts towards the people who we don't like. Towards the people who we have made our own enemies or have made us their enemies. But the way that he planned it is that in Jesus, God is working to reclaim all that was lost. Not just the ones we want to be saved. And, it, and so Paul comes to this, to this plan that he's been explaining and, and drawing out and showing just how much sin has been in this world. 
And he's inviting us to see God's graciousness and compassion for you and for me and, and understand what that means. But he's also inviting us to see that this is available for the world. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. This understanding that Paul has that all that God is doing, he, he is the creator of it all. From him and to him are all things. The things that we don't even think about, the things that we have no concept in our world that they even exist, those things still belong to God. Those people are still his creation. And what God is doing is not what we would choose for ourselves. But it's what he's chosen for us. And so we come again to our verse. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. When I first looked at this verse, uh, a couple weeks ago when, when Jim asked me to, to preach on this passage, I thought, oh yeah, this is, you know, here's the context. Paul is talking about how, uh, how wonderful and great. And I, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know where Paul was at when, when he was reading this. Uh, but this week especially, I wasn't very happy. Like I said, I wasn't very happy about these verses. And yet, God didn't ask me. And he didn't ask you. I think about my own kids and how I could respond to somebody who attacked them. And what is it about God's wisdom and knowledge that he offers love to We love God's grace when it's for us. But I don't know. I don't know about you, but if we're all, if I'm honest, sometimes sometimes I want to be like Jonah. And it just makes me angry. But he didn't ask me. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? God doesn't owe us anything. It's not like some of us are here because we deserve to be. And those other people don't deserve it. No, none of us deserve it. And yet it's there freely for all of us. God says to Jonah, like, you didn't create that plant, and yet you care about it. And think about, uh, I don't know if you, those of you that have kids that ever have, that have siblings, uh, one of the siblings is building with blocks, builds a little tower, whatever. His brother comes along and knocks it over, right? That's the best part about building a tower is that you get to be the one that knocks it down. Uh, and and the, the anger and the frustration that, that the one who built the tower feels when somebody else knocked it down, that was mine. And this is, this is Jonah, right? And he's like, my plant, God. 
And he says, are you right to be angry about the plant? Like, of course I am. This is my plant. God says, no, you didn't do anything for that plant, but look at the people that I care about. There's thousands of them who don't know their right from their left. And so, yeah, Jonah, I had compassion on them. And I sent you to them because I wanted to save them. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. My translation says his paths are beyond tracing out. We can't come to the end of what it is that he's doing. And our ability to comprehend the work that he's doing in our world. Sometimes we just throw our hands up and say, yeah, we can't understand it. Sometimes we try and still can't understand it. But God is working. He's loving. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. As much as we may not always want it to be, this is good news. It's good news for you and for me, and it's good news for our world. My prayer for myself this week um, is that I can somehow see the world with the compassion that God sees the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are in a way that we don't understand, yet that is who you are. Uh, And we know that that compassion and that we have been beneficiaries of your grace uh, in so many ways. And we're invited here with Paul to to proclaim and exclaim uh, your goodness and your greatness and your wisdom. And sometimes that's easier than others. And God, I just pray for for my heart this week and for our hearts that we uh, that we may be touched by your compassion and that we may be sent out to be the kind of people, to be the kind of church that carries that love to the people that we're going to meet. And wherever it is that you send us this week, whoever it is, may we be people who when they see us, they get just a taste of your compassion. And that the anger that we hold in our hearts, Lord, we ask that you uh, teach us forgiveness. Teach us to love as you love. pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, just a reminder, there's no evening service tonight, um, so don't come. Um, and as, uh, as a benediction, as a blessing, my, my prayer, again, for us, for you, is may, may you go into this world, leave this place as a church, and go as a church. People who have been touched by the compassion of our God, may you bear that compassion with you well this week. May the world know 
a loving and compassionate God. Because he sent you. May you not run away. God will find you. He might not send a fish. Um, But may he not have to drag you into bearing that message of his grace and compassion. But may you go willingly to share his love this week.